is Cassie, and welcome to the official podcast for the Network for Social Democracy in Asia, where we break down social and political issues and discuss progressive policies through the lenses of human rights, equality, and justice. You can listen to the podcast on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and Radio Public. Welcome back to the Sockdem Asia podcast. My name is Cassie. I am your host and I welcome you to today's episode, which is all about the efforts of the international community to promote human rights around the world and the special responsibility of social democrats when it comes to internationalism and expressing solidarity outside of their own borders. We'll be talking specifically about the European Union's passage of its own version of the Magnitsky Act called the Action Plan on Human Rights and Democracy. For some quick background, the Action Plan on Human Rights and Democracy is a mechanism that will authorize the European Union to sanction human rights offenders within its jurisdiction. So this ranges from freezing of assets to preventing entities or individuals from entering the European continent. Our guest for today is a member of the European Parliament from Sweden, a member of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats of the European Parliament. She was named Best Newcomer in the MEP Awards by the Parliament Magazine in 2020. Welcome to the program, Evan Insir. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. So I just have to ask, Evan, are you in Sweden now or are you in Brussels (laughs) I I must admit that I just arrived in Brussels, so I have barely had any sleep this morning. (laughs) Oh my gosh, thank you so much for joining us regardless. So we hope you had a safe trip and that you're in good health. All right, so like like I mentioned in the introduction, let's jump right into it. So the European Union has enacted its own version of the Magnitsky Act. I have to ask first, like, is this a law or an agreement? What do we call the Action Plan on Human Rights and Democracy? It's a mechanism. It's a regime uh, that is uh, that gives uh, or strengthens our work on uh, on uh, promoting and defending human rights and democracy in Europe, but also, of course, beyond. So it's a part of a bigger um, work that we are doing within uh, the European Union. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's great. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit about what is in it and what does it mean for? those who violate human rights, what is in store for them? So looking at Europe, but also, of course, beyond, uh, because this mechanism is to be used, not necessarily internally, but rather externally, uh, with, uh, with, uh, when it comes to, for example, people, organizations and entities that are violating human rights. Uh, so when looking at how uh, the world today see, uh, is, is looking like we see more and more violations of human rights, uh, dismantling of democracy, attacks on rule of law, uh, and this shows the importance at the same time for us to uh, intensify the work for defending these um, this, uh, principles. So the human rights, uh, the EU global human rights mechanism, sanction or regime, um, is there to strengthen the work from the side of the EU uh, as regards to these principles. And this means that if a person, is, if an entity, if an organization violates human rights, um, the European Union will be able more fastly than before to uh, sanction those people or entities. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what sort of sanctions can be applied 
under the action plan? It could be, for example, freezing assets in the European Union as, for example, money. It could be, uh, another thing could be, for example, to ban a, p- a person from uh, traveling into the European Union. So these are, for example, two very concrete examples. All right, all right. So I have to ask now, as an individual living in the Philippines, so we have a number of controversial figures in our politics who have been called out by the international community. So of course, when they are targeted, they call out that it's it's a false charge. They're being pushed around by a larger power. What are the standards for how the EU will determine whether or not an individual or an entity is a violator of human rights or a violator of the standards that have been set to be sanctioned? I would say that most of the people or most of them, those who are violating human rights and uh, dismantling democracy, um, whatever you do and how much concrete evidence you would put on the table, they would just claim that this is nonsense. What is, there is, I mean, international descriptions of what human rights and democracy is, and uh, these are, these are going to be, we're going to go from uh, only, not only talking to about them, but also making sure to impl- implement them. So uh, the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the concrete um, descriptions of uh, what human rights violations are, it's going to be those that we have on an international level. All right, all right. So I ha- want to ask now, so the European Union enacted this mechanism to help uphold human rights and to help uphold democracy. What mm-hmm. is the organization hoping will happen for human rights defenders? So the people who are being victimized in the countries where these violators are coming from. So what are we hoping will happen for those people working for human rights and democracy? What we're hoping is, of course, that less people will be, uh, will be um, violated or will be deprived their human rights. Um, and we see today um, an increase of the violation of human rights, and many of those violating it do not see, uh, are not um, targeted, and uh, there is some kind of an impunity uh, when doing it in many parts of the world. So this is to um, end the impunity that exists in uh, many parts of the world right now. All right. So I actually want so to I, ask. Oh, sorry. Yes. Go on. Go on. <laughs> Do you want to say yeah, something? Sorry. No, but uh, okay. when, of course, impunity when it comes to those violating it. But then we're looking at what it means for those human rights offenders. The question that you actually asked uh, is uh, that it would, I hope that this mechanism uh, will lead to more security for people who are defending human rights and, uh, and uh, democracy uh, all over the world. So it is in defense of all those people. Uh, would you, or was it brought forward in discussions in the European Parliament about how effective asset freezes and travel bans would be in deterring further human rights violations? I would say that it's not not effective. Then if it is as effective that we would want to see it, that's another, uh, that's another qu- uh, issue. But 
we live in a more and more globalized world where the countries, the economies, um, everything is more interlinked than maybe it has been before. Mm -hmm. This means that being banned from traveling to a big continent and an important continent uh, in, in, uh, in many ways um, would, of course, leads to uh, severe consequences for the persons or the entities that, that are being hit by it. So uh, I would say that uh, the, the, the consequences will be felt by those that are hit by it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I would like to ask now, so mm -hmm. in the States, when the Magnitsky Act was passed, so it was a bipartisan effort. So there was consensus across the aisle that this should be a law that we should have. Was it similar in the European Parliament? Like, was there widespread agreement that this mechanism should be created? It's pretty widespread. Yes, it is. Uh, but of course, um, when uh, when uh, looking at um, uh, some concrete uh, party groups, as for example, to the far right, they are usually not so much fond of, uh, fond of um, and, uh, this kind of mechanism because they are afraid that it will hit themselves uh, one day. We have also just uh, last month, uh, December of 2020, the last month of last year, uh, adopted a mechanism uh, in connection to rule of law and be able to uh, hold in money for those who are violating the rule of law. Uh, and that was also one of the mechanisms that the far right was totally against because they know that um, this would mean that they cannot uh, continue doing what they are doing when it comes to violation of our most um, fundamental uh, principles and values. Okay, so I want to follow that a little bit, to leave the topic a little bit. That, so you have colleagues in the European Parliament who are very much to the far right. And I have to comment that that sounds a little strange, given that when you look at far right sentiment, like the European Union sounds very far from something that they would want to participate in, but there they are. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to work alongside them, if there are any great challenges that come with working for an agenda for human rights and democracy when there are very, very different interests competing. Of course there is. I mean, there are always different interests in parliaments and that's how pluralism works. But of course the different interests usually, or the interest usually at least uh, meets on fundamental um, values and principles. But with these far-right parties, there is no common interest at all, and there are no common um, principles or grounds to meet at, at all. And that makes the situation more complicated. I've heard, I've had colleagues here the, in the European Parliament from the side of the uh, far-right talking in a certain way about people of color, for example, or black people, in a way that I could not myself imagine that it was possible that somebody would um, in an elected position talk uh, in, in uh, the European, uh, in, uh, on a national level, nor on a regional level in the sense of the European um, Union and European Parliament. So there are very much shocking statements that I've heard. And of course, those statements um, are not only statements, it's policies that, that they are uh, pushing for and that they are conducting especially in those countries where, where they have the possibility to go from or have some kind of a majority. So it is uh, problematic in so many ways. Mm -hmm, definitely. So I also have to ask that 
since this mechanism, when we think about like the European Union implementing these things, it's usually to parties outside of the European Union. But it also needs to be called to attention that there are some member states in the European Union that warrant some criticism and could even be considered liable under this new mechanism. So the specific point that we're bringing up, up is about Viktor Orban in Hungary, that it could be said that he has violated human rights, especially regarding actions taken against citizens and regarding the migrant crisis. So is there any conflict that is being expected to come up when you try to implement this mechanism within the European Union itself, within and among member states? So this spe specific regime or mechanism, it's an EU global mechanism. So it doesn't uh, apply um, internally. But we have, as I was mentioning before, for example, a new rule of law mechanism connected to the EU budget. Um, uh, this means that every year, um, uh, all the different member states uh, give a certain uh, gets a certain amount of money, depending on a calculation. Um, but this new mechanism connected to the budget will make it possible to, to hold in uh, or withhold money to those countries within the European Union who are violating uh, the rule of law. And of course, Orban uh, in Hungary, Kaczynski in Poland, they were not so happy about this. They were rather pissed off, sorry for my mm -hmm. English, but about it. And they did everything they could in order to prevent it. But so it is a victory that we have for the first time in the European history, also a rule of law mechanism within the European Union. And it's sad at the same time, because a couple of years ago, we were seeing a positive development uh, in the Union. And we were talking about how to make sure to uh, better the human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. Now we are talking about how we defend them. So there is a change, a paradigm change a bit uh, in some countries. So this mechanism is, uh, of rule of law is very important. And one could say that it's some kind of a EU global human rights sanction regime, but for internal. I would like to ask now about uh, any other actions or regimes that the European Union has come up with for sanctioning violators of human rights? So in addition to this one that we're discussing, have there been any other actions such as on the front of like trade sanctions or other, other sanctions that have been taken to, for human rights and democracy? If we start with the trade, for example, then we have two concrete issues that we nowadays uh, make sure that all our trade agreements um, contain of uh, that's human rights and the other is climate. Um, and we also very uh, concretely state within the tra uh, trade agreements that if the human rights and if the climate uh, issues are being violated, we will be able to uh, to um, uh, cancel uh, the agreements. So yes, there are quite a lot being done in regards to human rights. But I must also admit that we have a big problem within the European Union in regards to the human rights in the sense of that we, when it comes to issues, not trade, but other issues um, concerning foreign policies, there needs to be um, unan unanimity within the European Council or within the ministers within the committee where the Minister of Foreign Affairs meets. 
Uh, that makes it hard for us sometimes um, to, to uh, or the member states do not always agree and that becomes a problem. But now we are discussing to go from unanimity to a qualified majority, which is one of my hopes. Okay. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? So you mentioned mm. how you now have like a qualified majority and you're striving for unanimity before. Can you like, I have a feeling that there's a story behind that. And if you would feel comfortable with sharing it. Yeah, just to correct, it's a, today it's a unanimity that we are aiming for a, or struggling for a, a qualified majority. So today, for example, I will take one concrete example, and that's Belarus. Um, when we know we all know what is happening when it comes to the violations, severe violation of human rights in Belarus. Well, we were trying to, from the parliament side, pushing the European Council to make sure to adopt sanctions against Lukashenko, the dictator Lukashenko in Belarus, and other people who have contributed to the current situation. Um, it was it took a two month unnecessary time for for the whole. European uh, Council, the Prime Ministers, to agree because of one country, Cyprus, because Cyprus felt that, or Cyprus has an, a problem with Turkey as a neighboring country, and Turkey is occupying northern Cyprus. So, in some way, from my point, point of view, Cyprus held Belarus a bit uh, like um, hostage to be able to also get through sanctions against Turkey. And that's not how it should be. Of course, I understand the frustration from this Cypriot government, what is happening and Turkish violations of international rights and human rights. But at the same time, the Belarusian people uh, were the one being, um, uh, taking the consequences for a system within the European Union that required unanimity instead of qualified majority. Okay, so that I, I love that anecdote because it demonstrates just how complicated it is working in a system with many different stakeholders, with many different interests, in a system that has rules that are there to make sure that there are processes. But sometimes yeah. those rules end up getting in the way. So I actually want um, to ask, oh, go on, sorry. No, unfortunately, but I also just need to say that if it wasn't clear that after two months, the, the council agreed, which uh, we were very happy about, but it was still one, two months, too, yes. too much of time. Okay, Evan, I actually want to ask you a little bit more in relation to the worry that, or at least the hope that the regime will be applied when it's needed. What the what was what is the worst case scenario like what is the worry that there will be a human rights violator and you won't be and the parliament won't be able to come to a consensus on whether or not this person deserves to be sanctioned is that the worst case scenario so in the parliament we could uh, we can take it with a majority um we don't need to have a consensus on it but uh, the uh, the issue would be the european council um where all the heads of states uh, are um, but nevertheless, uh, I'm still positive uh, to it that there is a new tool highlighting the importance of addressing human rights. Now, when we have this uh, in place, it also sends a very clear signal um, to the, all the member states and heads of states that this is something that needs to be taken serious and even more serious that we have taken it until now. 
Um, regarding the internal mechanism within the European Union when it comes to budget, how effective do you think it will be in withholding budget from member states who have demonstrated that they do harm their citizens and that they do violate human rights? I actually think that it will be quite uh, very effective because Hungary and Poland are uh, actually one of those countries who are getting most um, uh, per capita, uh, most support. Um, uh, Sweden is one of those who are giving mostly to the European Union. Hungary and Poland are those among those who are getting mostly out of it. So in that sense, it shows that it could actually have huge and it most probably will have um, huge consequences for those who are not um, respecting the um, uh, the fundamental principles of the European Union, but also regulated in international law. So I actually want to continue following this vein. So uh, this the passage of the Action Plan for Human Rights and Democracy is obviously a wonderful step for the European Union and the European Parliament. But I also have to ask, is the situation of human rights in Europe getting better or getting worse? And how do you feel about it if reg- regarding the situation? I mean, connecting back to what we just were discussing about Orban and Kaczynski, Hungary and Poland, uh, of course, it's getting uh, in most of the places. It's getting, uh, it's going backwards. Then, when it comes to, for example, I must say LGBTI, for example, uh, rights, we see in some countries where it's also going forward, but other countries where it's going backwards. Um, but I would rather have wanted to only see uh, positive steps and not um, uh, negative steps in some countries. But nevertheless, we have within the European Union, for the first time in the European Union's history, a country which is illiberal, Hungary. Mm-hmm. This has not existed before uh, in the European Union. And of course, we need to also take into account that we uh, we are becoming more and more countries or containing more and more countries, but history-wise, I mean, it's the first time and it's serious situation. It's very surprising even. Like, I would think that since you've ne- that it's never happened before that there is an illiberal country inside of the EU. And unfortunately, like you see it all over the world that this kind of politics is becoming more popular. And mm-hmm. there is concern that, you know, it will just continue getting more popular. Like, why do you think these kinds of changes are happening? That these swings towards this kind of politics? I think there are several. Some of uh, are a bit connected to, for example, historical um, developments that are not really being, um, being dealt with. Others have that, and most of it, I think, uh, is due to that we didn't take the uh, development seriously already in the beginning. And in the heart of everything lays that people do not feel that um, the policies that are being implemented and adopted um, is making their lives better because we, I took Hungary as an example, I took Poland as an example, but we also see far right movements um, getting stronger and stronger in other countries. Take Italy as an example, my own country, Sweden, where we have Sweden Democrats up on almost 20 percentage. This is shocking. Um, and uh, I think w- there are a few things that are very important. One of them is named equality. 
we need to make sure to have policies that is is addressing um, equality and and. Uh, uh, one of the big consequences that Europe was dealt with was, for example, was the um, uh, economic crisis in 2018 and a couple of years forward. That hit everyday people's lives and people felt my life is getting worse. Um, and um, then the, the populist parties plucked up and said, we can deliver politics because the established parties do not do that. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, that equality is not in the heart of politics right now. Okay. All right. So thank you so much, Evan. So I hope everybody enjoyed our first half of our program discussions about the action plan on human rights and democracy and starting a little bit about our discussion on populism. So please stay with us on the Sockdem Asia podcast. We'll be back very, very shortly. Welcome back to the Sockdem Asia podcast. My name is Cassie. I am your host. And we are now entering the second half of our podcast episode with Evan Insir. She is a member of the European Parliament. And she is with us today to discuss the European Union's version of the Magnitsky Act, the Action Plan on Human Rights and Democracy. So before we went on our break, we were talking a little bit about the changing landscape in Europe when it comes to human rights. And Evan, the last thing that you said before we went on our little break was that the rise of right-wing populism in Europe has a lot to do with traditional politics or existing parties not delivering for citizens, not delivering their, their for their basic needs, things that those people believe that government should be providing. So now I want to ask you, since you are a member of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats of the European Parliament, what, do, what is the responsibility of socialists and social democrats to the people of either their own countries or even of the European Union to deliver these needs? Because, of course, it's in our interest to challenge far-right narratives and far-right ideology. Of course, I mean, we have a big responsibility and uh, ideologically wise, it is we who stand up for all, all people's equal rights uh, mm -hmm. to, to uh, both civil rights, but also social rights. Um, but I also want to maybe a bit correct if I can do that, um, that uh, it's, it's not in our interest to challenge the narrative of, uh, of the far right. It's our interest to make it better for everyday people because mm -hmm. in the end, people will feel that, um, that we are delivering their need. Um, the far right, the growing far right movements, growing populism is a symptom of that there is something broken in the society and people do not feel that um, uh, the, uh, the politicians are delivering what, what, their, what their needs are. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So I want to follow that a little bit more. Mm. How, what do social Democrats have to offer when it comes to fixing that thing that is broken in society? Be it that politics is just not delivering for the regular person. So is that what the social Democrats are offering? Social Democrats are offering the best of the combinations of civil rights and uh, uh, social rights. Um, uh, 
there is so when I was younger, some people were all, always asking. So if you were um, not social democrat, you could choose between being a communist and liberal, what would you be? Um, and that's, that's a question that always pops in my mind because social democracy is actually taking into account the, the social rights, which the left um, very much talks about, but we're also talking about the civil rights, which the, uh, the, uh, the maybe the liberals are talking about. So we are a, hub a good um, mix of uh, the best of uh, the, the, the best of the things. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say that, that, and that's what, why I am social democrats, because I saw that social democracy is actually delivering what the real need of the people are. Um, uh, and uh, that's, not, that's why I'm not communist, and that's not why, mm -hmm. I'm, uh, why I'm not liberal, um, mm -hmm. because I feel that there are things missing in both of the ideologies. One is authoritarian, the other misses the uh, fundamental rights to social rights. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to ask now, what interest is it of social democrats to fight for human rights and democracy outside of their own countries? Because that's very much what the action plan on human rights and democracy mostly is. Social democratic parties, we are um, internationalist by, uh, by existence because we are a product of, um, of, uh, of each other. Uh, it came, I mean, the, w w once upon a time, the ideology came from other countries, for example, to Sweden. It, it went from Sweden to other countries as a mean of making sure to, uh, to, uh, to address the need of the people within each country, but also globally, because we know that uh, we are a part of a bigger mechanism, a machine. And if something gets stuck in one part of the machine in one country, it also affects what's happening in the other countries. So I would say that the soul of social democracy lays internationalism. How would you describe the feeling or the sentiment of either Swedish citizens or citizens in Europe towards the action plan for human rights and democracy? Like, are they happy about it? Like, do they not care? Those who are engaged in uh, these issues, um, they are very, very much happy, of course. Uh, but to be frank, I think it's um, as it is with most of the issues that um, it's not really yet commonly known among everyday people. But with those who are active with these topics, um, I know that it's, it has been very much welcomed. And this is also one of the reasons of, for example, from the side of the European Parliament, we have not only through this action plan, but we have also through various statements always put in the necessity and the importance of EU global human rights sanctions mechanism. So it is a part of a bigger work that has been done from the us in the parliament, but also from the civil society organizations who are working with these issues. Mm -hmm, definitely. So I can relate a lot to that when it comes to discussing policy that the people who are involved are very happy about it. But when you ask a regular citizen, they probably don't really know much about it. So I would like to ask you, like, what do you think we can do as like social democrats to bring more of the average citizen to care about issues like this, to be in support of big projects like defending human rights and democracy? I think most of the people does uh, do defend human rights and democracy, but most of the people also want to feel that 
um, they are also being prioritized and not neglected. So these two things need to go hand in hand. And we always need to show that, uh, which is, I mean, in connect, connecting back, um, referring back to what you asked about social democracy and what we deliver and why internationalism is so important. Uh, it is to show that uh, the, the, what is evident that what is happening in one country is affecting us in Sweden or within the European Union, whatever happens in the Philippines, for example, is of course uh, affecting us here. At the same time as uh, solidarity must never ever see any, any borders. Um, so I think uh, once again, I do believe that most of the people do believe in, in human rights for all, but do not at the same time wanna be neglected. And we as politicians, we have the, we have the um, responsibility to deliver um, uh, on uh, on uh, both of these. Mm-hmm. What would you say to a citizen who is like a little bit on the fence that I like this, I care about this. Like I do think that there should be human rights and democracy all over the world, but they're also worried about themselves getting neglected maybe. What do you think would be the best thing to say to them? The best thing is that they are not opposed. I mean, both of the things are not um, in contradiction to each other, they go hand in hand with each other. Um, so that would be my answer. They go hand in hand with each other and they do not need to contra- um, contradict each other, even though some forces want to uh, may, uh, make, uh, make it sound like it does. And when I'm saying some forces, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm referring to the far right movements who are saying you choose your to uh, to um, make your situation better or other people's situation better Mm -hmm. i believe you can do both Mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily it's not a limited resource there's enough to go around for everyone i yes i do believe that uh, that there is uh, there are um, enough resources um but that would require that you also um you have a system in place which can contribute with the resources. That's also another reason of why I'm social democrats and not liberal or um, is that I believe that we, we need to, for example, have uh, taxes in order to, for everybody in the society um, to, uh, to have a second or third chance in society and we should not be locked to the wallet, how thick the wallet of our parents are. Mm-hmm. or what circumstances that we are born under. So I, um, it is very much how the system is built and how the system is built up. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's a sentiment that is expressed a lot in this podcast across our many different episodes, that there is a common belief that among social democrats that everyone should have a fair shot at life no matter where they come from. So I just have to ask now that is that sentiment unpopular or is it losing popularity in Europe given like the sentiments of liberals or other people who are in the parliament? No, I think rather opposite. I think looking rhetorically on what the party says, the different parties says, they, many of them have actually adopted some kind of, um, when it comes to socioeconomic issues at least, some kind of um, social democratic rhetoric. Even mm-hmm. the far right, when they talk about socioeconomic issues, rhetorically, uh, rhetorically, 
they talk like a social democrat. Then when it comes to migra migration and those kind of issues, yeah, that's totally uh, far away from each other. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the fundamental issues uh, of our ideology, socioeconomic issues, I rather think that it's opposite. But we should also not only listen to the rhetoric because that's what, what is making the situation so dangerous because they talk in a certain way but they walk on another way. Uh, mm -hmm. And we need to become better on showing that they are talking a talk and they are walking another walk as mm -hmm. regards to, for example, socioeconomic issues. Sweden Democrats in Sweden is very near, have a very neoliberal, are conducting very neoliberal policies, but they are talking as if they, they want uh, to be, they are classical social democrats when they talk about socioeconomic issues. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So, yes, I, I, I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit strange, like asking you to like name drop, but I just think that it's so good to illustrate like the, the, the politics that is just not ours. So when you, when you mean, like, tell us a little bit more about like, what are these walks what are these actions that are being taken and what are the things that they are saying that are very different from the things that they're doing for example we have in several for ex elections have discussions on pensions we have had discussions on um, uh, how the uh, school should be run uh, just uh, by the state the municipalities so or, or privately also and so on and so forth in the elections, they say one thing, and then when it comes to uh, when the elections are over and it's time to uh, also walk the walk, they're doing totally other things. They are instead of, for example, putting money on pensions, putting money on schools, putting money on the welfare, uh, wealth, uh, wealth, uh, welfare sorry, um, they prioritize cutting down on taxes. Classical mm. neoliberal way of acting. Mm. And of course, if you prioritize cutting down on tax and lower taxes, it means that you need to take the money from somewhere. You cannot mm -hmm. um, cut taxes at the same time as you increase the pensions. I mean, the mm -hmm. math mathematics doesn't really go, um, go together. But then, of course, at the same time, um, they are trying to blame people of um, migrant background for what is happening in the society for uh, not having enough resources. Um, so they have a very dangerous, uh, but traditional, of course, coming from a far-right movement, way of, uh, way of rhetoric and way of policymaking. Mm -hmm. It is cutting down on taxes at the same time as blaming the others, those mm -hmm. who doesn't look like uh, the traditional average Swedish, if one can say so. Mm -hmm. Would it be fair to say that a lot of these neoliberal actors and like these far-right actors, that they essentially promise things and they just don't deliver on them? Very like, much so, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, they deliver on one thing that is increasing, that is um, um, uh, stop helping people in need, for example. Mm -hmm. um, on, uh, they, are, they are delivering on... Um, uh, on um, uh, harsher measures uh, against areas where there are people of color, unfortunately, um, because, uh, be, be, because 
of there is um i think you all also have followed the whole issue that we have had in the Euro in europe but also in us about the black Lives matters um uh, demonstrations um that also shows um how the system right now works uh, have make put people of color and black people uh, in a very socioeconomic um, hard situation that has meant also that um, uh, many in suburbs, for example, contain of people that have black hair or black skin or have a migrant background. And in some way, um, instead of talking about socioeconomic backgrounds, this far right movement blames what is happening as a consequence of so, uh, socioeconomic people's socioeconomic backgrounds at people's skin color or people's mm -hmm. ba uh, background. So they're de delivering on, on increased hate and they are delivering on a lack of solidarity. Mm -hmm. Can you give advice to social Democrats, like to those to people listening to this podcast to fight against messages like that? I think it is... It is a part of us as social democrats that we don't see color. We don't see uh, where people are born. We only see one thing, and that is solidarity. Uh, that all people, all humans, are uh, equally worth. All people are um, have the right to their fundamental rights, regardless of where we are born um, and uh, and uh, what kind of background we are or who our parents are. Um, so it is important to take the struggle and it is a part of the struggle of injustice. Today, it could happen to one person. Tomorrow, it could happen to you. So human rights, it's not cherry picking when you want to defend them. It is standing up for them whenever and whoever is being um, uh, deprived of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So given that there, there is always going to be a battle going on to push forward human rights, to push forward protections regardless of racial background, regardless of economic background. What do you think is the future, or at least the situation that's coming, that social democrats have to work in, in Europe, to one, promote human rights and democracy, and two, to challenge racism, basically? Mm -hmm. I think we have a few of them or many challenges to uh, ahead or currently also. One is the issue of equality. We need to um, step up. Um, mm -hmm. The second is, uh, of course, uh, what you were just mentioning, the, the issue of human rights and especially the violations that we see in more and more places. And then, of course, uh, and, uh, the, uh, that more, a lot of people uh, of color and black people and migrant people are being hit by racism. There is a systematic um, systematic or institutionalized racism uh, within the society that needs to be uh, that needs to be uh, broken. And I think that what is happening the last year has raised an awareness on the issues. Uh, previously, I would say that people who maybe look like me were the one uh, being hit by it and understanding the seriousness of the situation. But with the last year's debate, I think that the, the, the um, topic has uh, been put in the center of the, of the policymaking now. And it is up to us uh, as politicians, it's our responsibility to not only let it become a point in the agenda, but also act 
to change the system because in the end politics is about changing the society and society mm -hmm. is a creation of us human beings and whatever is in it we can change it mm -hmm. absolutely right so we've talked a lot about current events and so now i kind of want to ask now Will there be any sanctions under the Action Plan on Human Rights and Democracy for like individuals in the states who have like for example challenged like Black Lives Matter who forward very caustic sentiments about black people or even like there are people who are at the head of armed militias that attack other people like do you think that there will be any will they be covered under the new regime enacted by the European Union? You think? I don't know. I cannot say in the specific mm -hmm. cases it will be implemented here or there. I can just say that it's not not covered. Okay. Negation and negative. Yeah. Okay. It's not not covered, but I cannot say yes or no to this. Okay. To the very specific question. All right. No problem. Like I just want to ask one more specific question because it's like really yeah. on my mind. So it's it's become the coverage of news reporting that in China there are Uyghur Muslims who are being mm -hmm. subjected to forced labor in these labor camps and there are companies like really big companies and like i'm allowed to name drop like apple that source parts from these places so huge corporations like apple like will there be consequences for them if it's proven that they have been procuring parts from sources that commit human rights violations Mm. At, this, at this stage, I mean, I can talk for my own opinion, and I think that, mm -hmm. yes, um, it should be covered uh, how the, the, the regime or the mechanism is uh, being built right now. Um, so, yes, when it comes to the Uyghurs in China, for, uh, it also comes to the Rohingyas in Burma, mm -hmm. um, uh, definitely, um, that's not excluded. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. So... Of course, I need to pivot this a little bit to our listeners now. So this regime feels very far away from like a person who is not in Europe or even maybe a citizen in Europe who's just a regular citizen. But what can be done to encourage more people to be involved in projects such as this one, promoting human rights and democracy? I think it's important um, that we... Um raise awareness about the development that are happening. We, after what happened, for example, in uh, the US um, one and a half week ago with the attacks on the Capitol, um, there was a discussion about polarization. We should not contribute to polarization. In some way, um, I mean, I agree with that. We should not contribute with polarization. But polarization, it becomes dangerous when polarization uh, becomes equal to criticizing violence, criticizing human rights violations, and so on and so forth. So I think it's super important that on social medias and on face-to-face uh, on -face, um, and in discussion, raise the issues of the human rights violations that are taking place. And also not only by 
you know, we sometimes think about human rights violation in the sense of a, there is a dictator or an oppressor who is, who is um, violating somebody's human rights. But it's not only that, it's also what, what Trump was doing with his um, rhetoric leading to um, people going on the streets and wanting to hang, hang the uh, vice president um, because he's not doing what Trump wanted him to do. That's really, really, I mean, what, according to my interpretation, that's also uh, fueling um, human rights uh, violations. And mm -hmm. according to the mechanism, actually, um, it's not only that persons or entities who are um, violating human rights, but it could also be people connected to it, um, triggering it. It could be people who are contributing to making mm -hmm. the situation worse. Yeah, people inciting it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. All right. So since we are, and it, it was just waiting to be brought up. So the situation in the States. So just your opinion, since like you don't, you can't really speak about how the mechanism will be implemented. So do you think Donald Trump will be allowed to travel to Europe in the, in the coming future? Uh, <laughs> the development in the U.S. will be, of course, um, is important. Uh, it's going to be interesting to follow it, but more than that, it's also serious. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. we will see what will also happen uh, judicially when it comes to Trump uh, and his actions. Mm -hmm. But if it continues like it does right now, and he continues as he has done before, and now he's trying to um, um, take it down a bit and say that he's, he doesn't want to, see, want to see any violence at the same time as he was claiming that there was, um, there was electoral fraud, fraud taking place and inciting it. Um, I mean, so we will see how he, how he will be acting um, from now on. And that mm -hmm. will, of course, affect and uh, that will be what will um, show what the consequences will be in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to round off all of the questions that I've asked in your in the podcast today, like I want to ask you now, like what do you think will be the challenges for this new mechanism put in place by the European Union? The challenges will, of course, be when to uh, implement it. That mm -hmm. would be the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. We hope for the best, like our this podcast, we hope for the best that the mechanism will be implemented well in the European Union. And we would like to thank you so much, Evan, for joining this episode of our podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule. Mm -hmm. And we know, and thank you for taking time despite the jet lag. We appreciate it very much. So now is the part in the program where I will open the floor to you to promote anything you like at all so our guests maybe they will they will promote a book or a report or a movie or a mixtape anything at all that you would like to share with the listeners of the podcast the floor belongs to you now thank you very much i think one i would like to promote a topic an issue mm -hmm. uh, we have been talking about human rights um for some time now uh, and a part of it is also um gender equality about feminism this is something that I'm working quite a lot with within, the, within my mandate or as a parliamentarian. Uh, why I'm saying that it's important is also that we see that when we are uh, going towards more equal societies, um, uh, it also shows that 
um, we are taking families, not only individuals, but also families out of poverty. The societies become better when more women are in decision-making uh, places, for example. And in the end, as we already um, talked about before, it is a matter of human rights. Over uh, around 50 percentage of the, um, the, uh, the people in the society in most of the countries are actually deprived their human rights in the sense of that um, they um, they are not uh, equally worth in the society as their male colleagues are and are not having the same possibilities to uh, fulfill their dreams. And this is something that I think uh, is a huge challenge that I will at least be continuing uh, addressing uh, in uh, as my role as a European Parliament as and as a social democrat, it is in the core of uh, the work that we are doing. All right. So thank you so much, Evan, for giving us that preview into your work. So for everyone listening to this podcast, you can find Evan on the internet. So if you are interested in following her progressions and her work when it comes to her different advocacies as a parliamentarian, you are very welcome to check her out on the internet. All right. So Evan, thank you so much for joining us. You have been such a wonderful guest. We've had such an amazing discussion that started from a mechanism and it went all the way into a discussion about social democracy, internationalism, our responsibility for one another. Thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you very much for this very interesting discussion. All right. So thank you so much to all of our listeners. You have been listening to the Sock Dem Asia podcast. My name is Cassie and I've been your host. If you liked this podcast, please feel free to get in touch with us via email or via social media. If you have any comments or any input that you would like to give for future episodes. And until our next episode, take care. And that was the podcast. You can listen to us on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and Radio Public. You can learn more about Sockdem Asia and our latest events and activities by visiting our website at SockdemAsia.com or like and follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SockdemAsia. If you wish to share your thoughts on this episode or past episodes, or suggestions for future ones, just send us an email at secretariat at socdemasia.com. <laughs>